Welcome to Forward. Educate yourself on the new world. The podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance with your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. Real chiropractic talk. No rainbows, no unicorns. Start putting in the work. The biggest names in the industry. The legends, the innovators, the up-and-comers. This is the podcast for progressive DCs. So buckle up. Passion is the feeling you have that you would probably do this for free and you can't believe somebody pays you to do it. Okay, everyone, welcome to Forward, the podcast, the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. And just like the announcer said, this is your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. And this episode features Gray Cook. And it's the second time Gray Cook is joining us on the podcast this season, 24 episodes in a season. And if I had the option and the privilege, I would do 24 episodes with Gray Cook alone. He is a physical therapist author, lecturer, strength coach, and more and more and more innovator of the functional movement systems, which includes the functional movement screen and the selective functional movement assessment and many more tools for your practice and for patient care. Um, Gray Cook's also, to me, a songwriter. You get him on some riffs and you let him riff like a jazz musician. And fortunately for us, uh, as he does so well in a lot of the the riffs that we weaved in this podcast, uh, he came back and he finished strong. Uh, Greg Cook is our headliner. He is is going to headline the Forward 2019 event at St. Louis, Missouri. Sorry, Chesterfield, Missouri, Logan University, September 20th through the 22nd. Uh, need I say that again? Greg Cook is speaking at Forward 2019. So if you're in the area, get your tickets. We've got the full weekend ticket option, and we've got an, a one-day ticket option for the main event, which includes Gray Cook, the whole Saturday, September 21st. So please, please do come on out. We've got a good party set up for all of you. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by our sponsors. Our sponsors are the American Chiropractic Association. Uh, they've got some great events coming up, including an interview interdisciplinary uh, spine care conference that you should check out. And of course, Engage 2020, which I'll be speaking at, is coming up in uh, January uh, January 2020. It's uh, formerly known as their National Chiropractic Legislative Conference, but now it's called Engage 2020. Check that one out. Uh, Parker Seminars also has great events. There's a good one coming up in October in Dallas, Texas as well. So if you're in the Dallas area, check that one out. Uh, we are also sponsored by Pain Zone, free samples of Pain Zone products at ipainzone.com, and the Miracle Wave from Advanced Musculoskeletal Therapies, which is home of the Miracle Wave. If you Google Miracle Wave or Advanced Musculoskeletal Therapies, it'll take you to their website. And Gerard and Mary Edna are amazing at taking care of you if you're in the market for a extracorporeal shockwave therapy device. And finally, the Chiropractic Success Academy, csacircle.com. Uh, check that out. Get on the wait list to get some great information about what the CSA is all about. Lots of freebies there. Um, so without further ado, all that housework is taken care of. Let's get on to the podcast with Gray Cook. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Forward Podcast with uh, my special guest today. This is Gray Cook for part two 
of a series as we lead up to forward 2019 St. Louis, Missouri at Logan University. Gray, how you doing, sir? Well, I guess the brief announcement that you and I have to say is if the first one didn't put you to sleep, give us one more shot. Oh, yes. <laughs> run them in unison. Yeah, you go rip Van Winkle if you run them in unison. Uh, let's start this with philosophy because okay. um, we have to ask the right questions, right? If we're going to get good we responses. And yes. Yes, we do. What do you understand about chiropractic philosophy? Let's throw a curveball to you as we get started. Do you think I there understand. is a chiropractic philosophy? Well, it was, it was weird because chiropractic philosophy was first discussed with me by an excellent manual therapist who, ex who respected chiropractic but was a classically trained physical therapy manual therapist, and his name was Paul Hughes. And, and he had trained in Norway um, and met Ola Grimsby and, and looked at the way manual therapy was done by the Norwegians and even advanced from manipulative uh, therapy into medical exercise training. So he was really looking at both ends of movement, the end of movement that you and I have to jumpstart with our hands and the end of movement where we put people on a different path in their life. Well, don't do that anymore. Well, you need to do more of this or you need to avoid those or this is the way your ergonomic station ought to be set up. We put people on a path so that those adjustments and changes we made with our own hands are now independent and sustainable in the best case scenario and at least conservatively managed in, in other scenarios. Paul pointed me in a direction of, he goes, the original inception of, of chiropractic and whether you want to look at the early osteopath or the bone setter or wherever it came from, it was a, a philosophy that said um, there are telltale signs in the aligned structures of the body that will tell you if there's disharmony or harmony. And that alignment is what we're going to use as our tool to look for disharmony in other body systems. And just like the, you know, the Greeks talk about the, the fluids and the humors and the um, uh, Chinese medicine talk about chi, there's always, we've got to balance the system and we're going to follow these cues. And chiropractic uh, basically seemed to have a good, good foundation in the, the postural alignment and how a well-functioning, well-aligned posture um, usually is better self-maintaining than a poorly aligned, poorly functioning posture. And I think that's the central premise that everybody stands on. And then all of a sudden, we're getting ready to disagree in a big way because how we return harmony to the system is now a methodology uh, of how we're going to do this thing, not a philosophy of what and why it needs to be done. Um, so I think all of us, all of us probably are more sensitive to certain body signals than others. I, I know a lot of people who are great looking at function, but they miss some classic static postural signatures that other people are really good at. Some people are really good at those static postural signatures, but as soon as movement and transition comes in, they lose their basis. So um, chiropractic to me seemed to be able to teach us all a lot about, uh, you know, looking at the body as an aligned and balanced structure. And then what are some of the things we can do 
to do that. And then Paul took me one step further and he goes, there's, there's straight and there's mixed. There's people who follow this, this, we're going to take a top down approach and look at the uh, skull as it sits on the top of the spinal column. And if that's not right, how can anything else be? And then we got guys that are going to have an eclectic approach and pull in, you know, soft tissue and fascial and neural tension and things from, from other avenues. So that's, that was, that was my basis when I very first started. And that's pre-meeting people like yourself and Greg Rose and, and, and Jimmy Ewan and some of the other chiropractors that I've had a chance to work with. But that was sort of the foundation uh, that, that I, was, I was provided with early in my career. One of the other foundations I think we got to uh, hammer out that, that would really help all of us along, I think, is to start with something that you just mentioned right before we started recording, that when it comes to philosophy, we have to, we have to at least start where we agree and then build from there uh, instead of what seems to be the opposite, which is in common, I guess, common social media context where we only want to talk about where we disagree. Um, where do you, where do you think well, we all I agree? Mean, <laughs> I don't want to get uh, into social media, but where do you think we all okay, agree? All right. Let's, let's go all the way back um, to the point of if, if there's anything that I think most of us disagree with partially, is the symptom management allopathic approach that has been largely driven by pharmaceuticals, not by the medical profession. The medical profession has actually been put under the scrutiny of hospitals and healthcare providers, and we've demanded that they be efficient, whether they're effective or not. Think about what I just said. Right. We need you to give medicine cheaper, even if people are the same level of sickness. Now, to me, in any model of teaching, uh, education, healthcare, uh, proactive healthcare, reactive or re rehabilitative healthcare, at, at, any, at any intervention we should, we should demonstrate our effectiveness before our efficiency. And let me rephrase that. I've had numerous people come up to me and said, we'd love to visit you in your little clinic in Chatham, Virginia, where a lot of this all started and sort of follow you around and talk about the screen. And I'm like, oh, that opportunity is not available to you. But if you know the screen, if you know the SFMA, if you know our systems and you're good at our systems, please show up because I don't know if I can make you more effective, but I can make you more efficient. I can get you there in three visits so you can spend more time working on the, the lifestyle management, all the other things. So you come here with a minimum level of competency of movement screening, movement assessment, and I will show you how to use those feedback loops tighter and more efficiently. But if we've got a debate philosophy, I'm not interested because I've already adopted one that I think is working for me and my colleagues. And so I've published and produced material that you can ingest. If you disagree, we'd have no further conversation. But if you agree, now apply it, make sure it works for you. And if it does everything it needs to, that's fine. And if, it, and if you still have some growing pains, I want you to find somebody who's got the, the system doing well for them, realizing that they're playing this instrument at a much higher level of proficiency than you are. But it starts with minimum level competency of a tool. So I'm not going to debate the tool anymore. Our reliability studies say if you're properly educated and, and do this stuff, we're going to help you find some of the stuff that conventional examination misses. 
And that's, that's, that's it. So if, if we're there, then let's see who's the most efficient. But my, my biggest disappointment in healthcare and education is they don't even demonstrate that they're effective, but yet we're bargaining on doing it quicker and cheaper. Doing what quicker and cheaper? Failure? But back pain has been, if, if, if cancer had been managed like back pain, it would be at epidemic proportions right now, but we look for early intervention and, and, and chemical toxicity and things like that. So we're so hyper vigilant on, on toxins and environmental stuff and, and, and things like that, but we let something like low back pain occur to the point where it's so frequent, there's a lot of people in healthcare that think low back pain is a diagnosis. And right. It's a symptom. Yeah. What did your, your doctor say you had? He said, I had low back pain. And I'm like, well, I think that's what you told him. He didn't, he didn't do anything new. You walked in and said, I'm here because my back hurts. He goes, well, I, I think you are, you're a candidate for, you know, some low back pain protocols, which involve these medications and these series of, you know, therapy. So nobody's even looked at the source of that. Because when we have somebody with cardiovascular issues, we try to go back one step and say, all right, what caused that uh, myocardial infarction? And so... So I, I think we're very, very complacent in the fact that musculoskeletal issues have morphed into an epidemic proportion, and we haven't been forced to logically state our case like many other specialists have. And let me yeah. drop one other thing. I think that musculoskeletal stuff is actually ahead of metabolic stuff on the health insurance gauges for the simple reason that since it's so convenient and efficient to drop in total joints, physicians are dropping total joints in people without responsibly vetting, does the knee need to re be replaced or does this, this, entire, this entire person need to learn how to quit abusing their knee while they're conserving their you know, hip stiffness and their, their poor foot support. So what's happened is, a lot of the people who got their total joints in Medicare are now getting them and throwing the bill to Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they're like, you mean to tell me with all the advantages we currently have, we're getting total joints earlier, but we're getting heart attacks and strokes later. We're getting diabetes. We're pushing off diabetes. So the metabolic stuff is being managed proactively like epidemiologists should. The right. musculoskeletal is being managed reactively with surgical intervention before we truly vet rehabilitation. And, and most of the time when rehabilitation is ordered before surgery, it is not ordered to prevent surgery, it is ordered to prepare you for surgery because many physical therapy clinics participating in this model are owned by the physicians that benefit from the surgery, the pre-rehabilitation, and the post-rehabilitation. Yeah, Why would anybody like want to change that model? It's like checking a box off the list. All right, they did the rehab. Let's go for the surgery. Do you think a lot of so this don't, optics? Don't be surprised. Yeah, don't be surprised if, if healthcare demands a musculoskeletal screen before the professions that do it. Isn't that a shame that we're so bad at policing ourselves and we're so comfortable with being fragmented? Not in our treatment, but in our own analysis of what's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I mean, and so, so adding some degree, getting back to that agreement point, I think we all agree that, that you've got these four things wrong with you. I would like to have a way to agree that we all think this is the bottleneck. And if we think that, we should be able to prove it in two moves or less. 
And what I try to take much of my education back to, and if you look at everything in the FMS, the SFMA, everything we do, the, there's no genius in it at all. I have turned movement into a binary code, answer a yes, no question, and I'll tell you the next thing you need to do. So when you look at a movement screen, people think you're trying to grade a movement screen. My only question to you is, does it hurt? And if you say no, then I ask myself a question. Is it a three? And if the answer is no, then I ask myself a question. Is it a two? See, so when too many people don't really go back to the, 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 the heart of their problem and work their way out of this confusing area with a binary code. Now, we expect physicians and pilots and, and teachers and uh, referees and umpires to have yes, no. Ball or strike, right. which yeah. is it? But when, when we start getting deep into patient management, I hear professionals who know better talking about what they feel. Well, I feel that <laughs> <laughs> that's for bridge club, buddy. That's, you know, not, that's not for the cockpit. You give yeah. somebody a degree on the wall and all of a sudden they're the, the expert. They've got the absolute say. Remember when, uh, remember when we were kids? Did you ever look up to adults when you were a kid and say, I can't wait to be an adult because they've got it all figured out. Yes. You know, yeah. and it's like, they must know everything. And then you become an adult and you realize, Oh my goodness, there's a lot of doubt still out here. Yep. Um, and I, I think that happens yep. to our professional. Lot. I think they expect our leaders to already have all the answers, not understanding that we're all trying to figure it out as we go as well. Like I can have a lot a of lot. sympathy for the FMS system because no one else has done it. It's got to be figured out over time experimentation. No, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, the, the, the first, the first exploration ever done into a new area didn't pave a four lane highway. It, it had to cross right. rivers and valleys and, and stuff like that. So, you know, me and my colleagues and, and, and yourself too, we've had to deal. I think we basically all appreciated an unidentified and poorly managed variable within healthcare because we used to go from health to fitness to skill career sport whatever your thing is right and we all knew that if you were unhealthy that can affect your baseball right we all knew if you were unfit that can affect your baseball but what happens is anybody now with functional problems just i'm talking basic mobility and stability motor programming problems covering your very first and most primal movement patterns if you can't do those and don't have pain, we can't call it healthcare. And if you can't do those, we throw more fitness at it. And so there's never been an, a, 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 what I consider a fourth layer of evaluation. Get your health vitals, your rest, regen. And you and I have both seen people in low back pain that have probably accumulated four hours sleep in the last eight nights. Yeah, the gas tank. My first order of business, yeah, my, my first order of business is not the SFMA. I'm going to clear their reflexes, make sure they're, they're not hypoxic, and I'm going to say, what can we do to get you more sleep? And if, and if some of that is me showing you positioning or getting your back basically just calm down a little bit, or even conferring your, with your physician and saying, I don't have the physical skills to cool this person off and they need some sleep. Do you agree with like a Medrol dose pack or something that's, that's going to give them some temporary relief, but no long-term symptom cover-up? 
And I've had really good discussions, both with pro athletes all the way down to just, you know, a, a farmer with a position saying, hey, I think we can do this, but I got to cool them off first. Let's, let's, you know, let's do that. And sometimes we can do it with bed rest. So one of the first things that a lot of the people come that, you know, want to see Gray Cook do whatever it is Gray Cook does is half the people I'm like, yeah, my fancy stuff ain't ready for you today. I need to get you <laughs> hydrated. I need to get you sleeping well. I need to get you out of a recliner with a heat pack for five hours and into a bed slide lying in fetal position, if possible, for three at a time. And so my goals are so less ambitious than what people probably think I accomplish on stage. But a lot of my cases start that way. I don't want to see you for a week. Go sleep. Go get some rest. And, and for the people that can afford to and can play a sick card, do it. And for the people that got to move a little bit, um, I might put you in a back brace. Not because I want your abs to get weak, because your SI is clunking around. I can hear it from across the room. So I'm just going to give you some degree of integrity and protect you from yourself and your lifestyle before I ever try to correct anything. Remove the negative first. And a lot of people just don't know how many negatives they could potentially remove before they vet the quality of their treatment. Because many of us are doing the right treatments at the wrong time. Yeah, and everyone's the body won't hold it. A lot of people are motivated by their inter interventionalists, you know, they, they feel they need to take some sort of action. And, and, and if they don't, they feel like my whole thing is if you don't think I helped you at all and yesterday you couldn't touch your toes and today you can and your Y balance test got better and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then what I can say is your symptoms haven't changed, but you're functioning at a much higher level under those symptoms. Or your symptoms have changed in a great way, but your functional level has not changed. So I can use my functional scale to both point back at me and say, you got to get them some function, you know? So it wor it works both ways. What do you think about this diagnosis of nonspecific low back pain? Because oh, it's everyone's a, it's throwing a place it to hide. It's complexity for profit, man. It's complexity for profit. It's a good place to hide for something that's epidemic. I mean, you may as well be thinking the black plague comes from thunderclouds, you know? <laughs> but there's so Speaking much research. Thunder again, everybody's getting ready to die. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Uh, when I was speaking in Australia last week, uh, one of the questions that was proposed to me as a clinician was, what, what do us clinicians need from our researchers? Is that a fair question to ask? It, it, is, it is a fair question. And I think, you know, researchers can only do it if we ask them to. They're not in the trenches. They're not having to face people that are getting ready to make an opioid choice or not. They're not having to do that. They're in, they're in an ivory tower. They're trying to be as cold and clear and systematic as possible. And God bless them for that. Because I will tell you this, science, if you look at the word, the way it's defined, is basically the language of explaining natural phenomenon. And it's done in two ways, observation and experimentation. I consider myself a scientist because of the way I'm trying to observe movement. I don't do experiments in movement because I don't think we have to. There's both deductive and inductive reasoning. And just in the normal developmental sequence is enough learning lessons to say, if somebody stops walking, there's no reason not to look at their parts, 
but there's also no reason not to look at the other patterns they may have deleted or done. So I think researchers are simply basically going down the rabbit hole of the data we've currently provided them looking for meaningful ways to maybe change their trajectory of treatment. When if we would back away and first ask the question, why is the female ACL still almost looking like an epidemic? Why is still? Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, one of the original reactions from the medical community was, well, you know, the menstrual cycle and the Q angle of the hips. But the funny thing is, if you go back in history, the females have been playing competitive tennis and running in the Olympics for a long, long time. This ACL for the female athlete seems to have a lot to do with females equal rights to play field and court sports. And they're given scholarships, but are they given the same preparation and education or are they just provided the same playing schedule and time? When you look at what goes into male athletic development outside of the skill of a sport, there's a lot more. There's training tables, there's nutrition, there's sleep uh, criteria and stuff like that. And we haven't done that for the females that we give scholarships to at the same level of quality. So maybe just in there, the, the, you know, the opportunity to play, but not the equal opportunity to prepare. That in lies the ACL problem. In the ACL, to me, the, the, the movement patterns that systematically sacrifice the knee are behavior patterns. And I think one of the questions that one researcher needs to ask back to me is, the, the return or recidivism rate for a female athlete getting an ACL repair goes up exponentially, meaning they're going to have another incident. But here's the outlying piece of information. It may or may not be on the side that was repaired. Very meaning this person is moving in a way that's going to sacrifice both knees, usually one before the other due to side dominance or the position or the play or the sport you're doing. But the fact that I'm going to unknowingly sacrifice my knee in a non-collision, non-contact situation means I have a, I have a human that's self-aware, that's not self-aware that pronation, valgus collapse, quad dominance, and anterior pelvic tilt, uh, and the inability to squat or backward bend with, without discomfort isn't a norm. Because they look around and everybody else is feeling the same thing too. So this must be what soccer feels like. This must be yeah. what, you know, college softball, basketball feel like. And we've got trainers there to ice it down and shut you up. But we don't have anybody <laughs> that will step back and quit looking at what's the degree of valgus collapse we can allow. It's going to yeah. be different for everybody, man. It's going to be different for everybody. This is like a, a brand of virtue signaling, you know, to put a female athlete up on the stage but not supply – her with the same support systems and preparation as a male athlete? Is it the uh, exactly. a virtue signaling of, look, we're giving them the stage time, but then on the back behind the, behind the stage, uh, they're not getting the same love? No, and, and, and I, will, I will tell you, instead of me just bitching like I just did about it, I could show you how to reverse engineer this thing quite well. The, the environment, what we're basically doing is calling out in question the environment provided to female athletes with which to play and train. Yeah. And that environment seems to be more ACL ugly for females than males. So what if we went and just said, you know what, screw the experimentation. I'm going to do an observation. And here's what we do with that. 
we find the female athlete who made it through four competitive seasons in high school or four, three or four competitive seasons in college and was a durable performer. They were available when needed and they, they contributed when asked, meaning they were performing at the level that the coach valued their contribution and they were available, meaning I'm not I'm available to practice, I'm available to play. Now, if, if we don't question why they weren't available, it could be psychosocial, emotional, it could be academic, there's something in you not preparing yourself for this, and an injury is one of those things. So let's just lump all people who can't play today in a um, non-available category. If we want to assign durability to that, um, we can, but then we can sequester our people who had academic problems, pull those out. But my whole point is, if we can find a small group of female athletes that come out unscathed from high school or unscathed from college athletics, and we reverse engineer, meaning we backward measure, I wonder what their Y balance test is. I wonder yeah. what their VO2 max is. I wonder what their FMS is. I wonder what their hop and stop test is. I, and, and here's where and everybody, and, yeah. exactly. And, but, but here's the way to make the argument. Instead of looking for the things that these durable performers do similarly, ask the opposite question, and I think you'll get closer to the right answer. Yeah. What things do they all avoid similarly? And now all of a sudden, we're not asking the success question. We're asking the non-failure, which actually fits natural movement behaviors better. Certain environments select certain behaviors, right? And they hold them up. So you're going to see taller people in basketball, right? Right. The, the very first basketball game we ever played, everybody was playing. And then all of a sudden, the more we played, <laughs> the more the guy who was 5'5 five five just said, you know, I really like tennis better. <laughs> <laughs> so, so certain environments, the more we press them, the more they say, we're going to select certain movement behaviors. A behavior that's over 6'5", meaning I, I'm over 6'5", and I behave that way, right? You know, so um, that's it. So if we go back to these females that are surviving these environments that seem to be toxic to most other females, we'll find, you know what? I'm going to give you a great cook hunch. They're all sleeping over six and a half hours as a group, statistically speaking, against the group that they're beating, okay? They're, they're, they're probably got better sleep habits meaning rest and regeneration. They probably have better nutrition habits. They probably have greater than average ankle mobility. And they probably have greater than average movement symmetry, say between hips and shoulders, T-spine, pelvis, and stuff like that. And last but not least, they're probably very self-aware. I've always said, I don't think you need to have a perfect movement screen to be a Hall of Fame athlete. You just need to be aware when you don't. The body my whole point is you got it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, if, if you're a physically dominant athlete and you know, there's things you can't do, you just don't let those situations occur. Right. You, you head off those situations and you never get put in a low center gravity position. Right. You just right. don't, you don't, you don't have to. So, so I've never been, I've never argued for the better your movement screen, the more injury insurance you got. That is a freaking comic book, uh, lowbrow argument that I will help you make. I won't, I'm not going to argue against that. My thing is, 
if we know that we can't prevent injury, let's ask ourselves, can we prevent poor rehabilitation? Can we prevent poor um, uh, pre-participation physicals? Yes, we can. And that's demonstrating the predictive value in it. And, and we don't do that. We're looking for the catastrophic health problem. We're not laying down a movement profile for this child because whether they blow an ankle or get a concussion, I don't just want an ankle specific test and I don't just want you to count backward. If it has altered the way you lunge and balance and turn and twist and are aware whether you can or can't, con concussion or ankle still in play. Yep. And so we've got, we've got these tests that we run at with research, like our local test, four different ways to assess the ankle, five different ways to assess the knee, bioelectric sensors on every joint. But we can't have a good democratic comparison of local and global behavior. And I'm gonna take this right back to Aristotle. Aristotle told us the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and we believe it and we operate on that every day. But the alternate is also true. You can put somebody on the table and demonstrate all the requisite ankle, hip, knee, uh, and, and, and foot and, and spine flexibility it's going to take them to squat below parallel. And you can leave their back flat on the table and shove their feet all the way up so their knees are up in their chest, demonstrating this is the range of motion it would take. They would easily be below parallel. Stand that person up and they can't squat below parallel. They can't manage and, it. No, they can't, but it's not because they don't have the freedom of motion. It's because they don't have the control of segments to get yeah. that to happen under their own control. So, you know, Greg and I have even toyed with the idea of let's kill the words mobility and stability. Can so many people assume they're doing them right and say freedom and control? If you don't have the freedom in your ankle to squat, then I shouldn't be exercising you at all in that. Okay. That's yeah. like trying to make a colorblind person see red really, really well. It's not going to happen. I've got to deal with the ankle first. But I shouldn't be looking at that ankle if you hadn't failed the squat or didn't tell me something happened to your ankle in the first place. But the minute that ankle has enough range of motion for them to squat, it no longer can be vetted as the excuse of why they can't squat. Now it's another reason. And so sometimes... You just don't have the processing and control. Sometimes you don't even have the freedom to pull it off. But how can that be more than a three-step decision-making process? That's an easy process to decide whether I play the part and watch the pattern or work on the pattern and see if it fixes itself. If I've got bad parts, there's no reason not to you know, do a little something with them, but I don't have to optimize ankle mobility in a single session. I just have to demonstrate that what I did with your ankle locally not only increased your dorsiflexion by 15 degrees, it moved you in a squat category from a one to a two or from pain to no pain um, or um, six inches greater depth. However you want to look at the global pattern, you need to know that your local adjustment had a global effect or not. And if your adjustment didn't have a global effect, were you on the right place or do you just need some integration time? Do they need to fiddle around with it? Do you need to put them through, a, say, a movement path or awareness drill or breathing drill? And that's where I think we can really say, okay, this tool did this, but we shouldn't ask it to do that. And we just move on out. But right now, researchers don't have global movement behavioral tests to poke and prod at. So they're going to poke and, poke and prod at force plates and bioelectric sensors, and they're going to try to tell people in the foxhole what kind of bullet to use. 
We know what kind of bullets are working in the foxhole. What we want you guys to do is vet the process and make sure we didn't miss anything. And, and so, you know, I would love to see uh, movement researchers think and write and act more like epidemiologists. Questioning, the question either needs to wind up, I'm questioning the organism preparedness or the environment harshness. One of these two things is not good. This environment keeps breaking down this organism or this organism is poorly prepared for this environment. That's, that's the question we're trying to ask. And I think we can, we can vet that if we're all willing to go back that far in the questioning process. You know what we just did here? It's, a, it's an epic moment in Grey Cook history. Uh, what did we do? We started with a question and then we actually ended on the same question. <laughs> oh wow! You brought it back around. It's like a complete song. Man, I'm, I must have thought about this once or twice before. <laughs> so here's a here's an adaptation to that question. Since we were asked, okay, how can researchers? Uh, what can researchers uh, provide to clinicians, or what do clinicians need from the researchers? What about our innovators? No one ever asked the innovators, or no one ever asked the clinicians what they need from the innovators. Uh, if we want to classify an innovator as not a researcher, but someone who's creating new products or new ways of uh, behaving or new ways of providing care to people, uh, we would classify obviously you and Greg Rose and as innovators, thinkers, um, people who bring things to the market. Uh, is it fair to ask the clinicians, what do we need from our innovators? Uh, or do we just let you guys run free? It's a hard well, question to ask um, you because you're also a clinician too. So you kind of, well, you can but, also say that. But, but you wouldn't want me designing jets for you if I weren't a pilot, probably. Absolutely not. So, Absolutely not. So, but I've got, I've got to bounce there all my ideas from the cockpit on guys who can, you know, look at, look at 3D too. I would say um, for creativity to do its job, you do need to let us run free a little bit, but you need to rein us back in every now and then say, okay, you know, just like the record company, we gave the band a little bit of money, but we expect you to come out of the studio with another hit album. Yeah. And, and I think the the one thing you should ask of those of us trying to, to be out here, because, you know, a lot of people are going to benefit from what we're doing now, but no more than I've benefited from what the people before me did. We, we all drink from wells we didn't dig. Yeah. But I honestly think that what you need us to do is ask the questions that the structure or the academia or the political correctness never allowed the everyday clinician to ask. We, we've got to ask those questions. So here's Henry Ford. He's an innovator. He said, if I had polled the U.S. public, they would have wanted a faster horse. I gave them a car. Yep. So if, if, if you try to basically please the populace, you won't be an innovator. You'll be a politician. Oh, I know those. Yeah. 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 And, and, and if you want to be the president of an organization, then you've got to either be very, very popular at what you're doing, or you have to be perceived as the person who's going to pull us to the next place. And, and so what I tried to do, and, and this is where I think, you know, Greg and I and guys like Kyle Kiesel and Phil Plisky and Lee Burton, we sort of come together in that it is our job to demonstrate a more effective model. 
the markets will make it efficient. Number one thing we, we, we heard is pushback when we first introduced the SFMA, that takes too long. Mm-hmm. And then you, you, you have innovated on that. Well, it, it takes too long, but my first question back to them is, then why did you come up to me on the break asking to bring your daughter to me? <laughs> do you want the 15-minute great cook or do you want the 45? The point is you're listening to me because I distinguish myself, and I distinguish myself by missing a lot of lunches and workouts and getting home at 7 instead of 5.30. And, and was that the healthiest thing for me to do? No, but I was building this thing. All I'm asking you to do is use it. And if you think it takes a long time to do, it took a shitload longer to build. So if I'm adding 15 minutes to your normal exam time, I'm not so sure I couldn't find that 15 minutes back for you in stuff you could easily delete and not change your effectiveness. And I'll give you a statistic that shows that. The people who are horse prospectors, the people who predict the, who's going to win a horse race, which is really what we're doing. We're trying to prognose a case. And for, you know, our, for the business purposes, we want to know about how long we're going to have this case in, in, in the clinic. And for their own life, we want to know how long this is going to take. So everybody wants to know, all right, you found all this. How long is it going to take? We've got to make a prediction for ourselves and for the people we care about. Um, they had like 50 different variables that people could look at if they were going to try to predict the win of a horse race, everything from the horse's genetics to the state of the track and the weather that day. And most horse prospectors would, would wrap their arms around this huge database. But a bunch of psychologists started saying, okay, if we reduce that data by five, and, and the whole point was they systematically took them down to five pieces of data. And every time they had a reduction in information that they could scrutinize, their confidence level in their predictability in their prediction went down. But the funny thing was their effectiveness didn't. The researchers already knew the five pieces of data they always consume first. But by providing young clinicians with 30 data points and no hierarchy leaves them completely lost. We have a systematic approach in everything we do. If, if your reflexes are gone and we just think you've got a sprain strain, you're a whole different thing. You don't, you don't get heat or ultrasound, <laughs> right? We, right? right? So, yeah. so my, we, there's a hierarchy and so many people are debating all these different data points, not realizing that you can't even consider 90% of those data points till these first five are checked. And then once those five are checked, we have five more that are way more important than the large aggregate that you want to dissect. And so the horse prospectors, had a blanket of comfort in a huge data surplus, and yet their effectiveness wasn't reduced even though their confidence was. And that's exactly what I'm trying to tell people who've been evaluating in a less effective way. They're telling me, well, I'm really efficient at doing it worse than you. And I'm like, so was I. <laughs> oh, that's, I uh, that's like be... Voltaire, right? Uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an abs uh, absurd position. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, you know, people come to our workshops and, and we make them uncomfortable and I'm like, that's what growth feels like. I, I felt the same way in that chair. Yeah. And, and I was supposed to feel, Ola Grimsby was supposed to make me feel that way, you know, forged by fire. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the obstacle, what's the obstacle, but the, the thing that, that people don't, they don't want to go toe to toe with me and Greg on effectiveness. Right. Right. They want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me and Greg in efficiency. 
Well, we haven't made our, we didn't build our business on bulk. We better build our business on expertise at, 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 at the highest level. So, you know, I guess the way you could consume a new way of assessing or screening movement is say, all right, I'm going to cherry pick a few things and hope it informs my model. Or I'm going to take a hit and apply it across the board and stall my practice to a T or every Tuesday we got to do, we got every Tuesday, we got to have four SFMAs over the week. So meaning not every evaluation coming into your clinic is the SFMA. You would, you would go in your clinic and that's the way me and the guys did it in our original clinic. If we saw a new way to evaluate, we wouldn't stop the old thing we're doing. We would just randomly, all right, let's do the new thing. We knew it was going to take longer. We knew it was going to be uncomfortable. We knew it was going to make us go through growing pains, but did it yield superior information? And if so, now can we look back at our previous model and open up time of unfruitful endeavors? And sure enough, we're right back at a, you know, most of our, most of our seasoned clinicians are in and out of an SFMA, a neuro screen, and usually a balance and breathing test before most people are halfway through their musculoskeletal exam. So for the, for so the listeners, the that's called advice. Coming. Yeah, advice for listeners. That, that was advice on integration, if you're listening. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's the, the, the first two ways are ludicrous. Don't break a system apart. Nobody cracks their iPhone open and says, I want this chip and a Samsung phone. You don't do that with a system. You, you either use the system or you don't. So you got a Prius or you like burning petrol. Don't, don't blend the two, you know, because the hybrid's never going to be the, the end result. It's just a temporary transition. But many people, both in strength conditioning and rehabilitation, cherry-picked a few things that resonated with them out of the system of the screen or of the assessment, and maybe it was impactful for them. But I tell them it's, it's a whole different world when you let the system do what it does because that's, that's how standard operating procedure winds up actually making things more efficient in the long run. Standard operating procedure and new systems make things more effective. But then the time savings and the ability to delete unfruitful behaviors in your own practice later actually make you more efficient. The efficiency comes at six months. The proficiency in the system with greater effectiveness usually comes in the first month. And you spend the next four getting smooth, efficient, while not reducing your effectiveness. But now in six months, you are doing things as fast as ever at a higher level. Isn't that what happens to athletes when they go from amateur to pro? That's exactly what happens. Yes. They're effective at a higher level of efficiency. They can reproduce it consistently. And that's what people are asking for. And I can fix your business model with a new perspective, but it's going to take six months. Watch your books. Watch your time allotted. And what you're going to see is that greater success at the same level of efficiency is pretty damn good marketing because word of mouth is 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 how we've built most of the things we do. Well, I don't think, think about it. I don't think clinicians do. really work. They, I don't think they work really well with performance indicators. I think they look at uh, trailing indicators very well. They want to know how many patients they saw, how much money they made, how many new patients they evaluated, but they don't really look at the leading indicators, like what got them there. Uh, so if they ever see their trailing indicators go down, like I saw less patients this month, 
Um, they want to throw anything at the wall that'll stick to bring the number back up instead of being focused on these leading indicators and saying, well, how in-depth and and observant was I in my initial evaluations or my reevaluations? Like, you know, how good was I at educating and did that make a difference? I don't think the clinicians, at least from the chiropractic point of view that we're producing these days, think of themselves as scientists slash practitioners. They're not, they don't, they don't, either they don't want to experiment with their businesses or they, they, they're afraid to do it or they just don't know how, but you have to keep trying new things to, to see what works to get better and better. Um, I think that's missing. You do. You do. And, and how many, when you're in a 40 hour week or 50 hour week practice, how many cancellations do you usually have where the spot doesn't get filled? I, I would probably say when I was in the heaviest part of my practice, I had three guaranteed no shows a week just because of the volume we had or scheduling mishaps or something. I had a slot. Yeah. I could go in my office and play on the internet or I could come back out and grab one of the patients that, that I initially saw. And we, you know, I had a, I saw twice as many evaluations as anybody else in the clinic just because I had guys who were really good at treatment and I had more treating clinicians, more very good treating clinicians than I had assessment physicians or positions. And so I just took on the extra evaluations and paperwork simply testing our models in a Petri dish. So by the time I was 35, I had probably done twice the musculoskeletal exams of any clinician my age because I was doing initial treatments and basically the, the cases that were going the way I thought. I had already written a plan of care. And so one of, one of my colleagues could follow that plan of care. I don't even need to be there on graduation day. I already told you this guy was going to graduate between 10 and 14 visits, right? Yeah. So I don't want to know my successes. I only want to know my failures. And in the original clinic I set up, the shit runs uphill, meaning you got the malingerer, you got the person who you think is getting secondary gain, you got the person who you're pretty sure the case is going to, uh, you know, a deposition or something like that. Uh, you got something you can't figure out. Oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? We got a vestibular problem too. That goes in my room. Y'all don't deal with that. Y'all, y'all run the show. You know, you take the knee, you take the back, you take the neck. That's the 80-20 play. I want the outliers and problems in my room because I want to see when I got to leave the system and when the system will fix this problem. And so most people try to make those ambitious decisions up front. Let the system do what it does. What pops out the other side, it's really going to be obvious that you got an outlier or you got some other problems that you hadn't thought of yet. And, and, and you, you're exactly right. We're, we're, we need to think of what we do just like physicians do in upstream medicine. There was a typical thing in the ER. A uh, guy was telling a story on a TED talk where, you know, people were coming in uh, getting normal migraine medication treatment, but they're showing up the ER first time migraine. Well, 20 migraine treatments in, one physician happened to notice they all had the same address. They were all in the same apartment complex. We had a black mold problem. <laughs> Right. But how many times are we? Per yeah. Yeah. And so it was that one thing. Nobody was asking the environment question. Everybody was just looking at the organism, you know, and you can't you 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 can't do that. You've got to you've got to do that. So, you know, on on one end, you know, I've been working with Greg on better ways and more efficient ways to make our assessment good. Kyle Kiesel has really helped us look at breathing as an indicator of central nervous system stress, not just a 
form of breathing, and we will do dry needling or joint mobilization manipulation or something, and we will change baseline breathing. And you could infer heart rate variability. There's, there's no placebo effect on heart rate variability, but we know that there's certain things we do that amp down the CNS. And one of the things we've been, been able to watch is I've seen a lot of really good clinicians really take care of the central nervous system and amp down that level uh, simply by, you know, moving a segment or stabilizing or doing something. They send them right out to the gym, <laughs> ramp it back up, doing a stupid exercise and rejack the system all over again. Cortisol's right back where it was because this person's over there side planking, holding in their breath. Well, you didn't intend for them to hold their breath, but if you don't dedicate just as much attention to that early exercise intervention as you did your last adjustment of the needle placement, then what the hell? And that's where I'm, one of the things I'm excited to talk about, the opportunity you've given me to talk, is I'm going to talk about I didn't represent exercise as well as I could have. I, I offered up corrective strategies and ways to complement your manual therapies with their own movement, but I realized I was showing you a rabbit trick and I didn't give you enough steps in the trick because I was doing some of those steps intuitively and, and I got there, I don't know if intuitively or just by, by trial and error, but I want to rephrase the discussion of, all right, you guys wouldn't be chiropractors if you didn't know how to reset the system, but how do you hit save on the document that you just wrote? And, and believe it or not, your long-term business interests requires you to make a certain percentage of your patients unbelievably independent and only needing you for maybe a yearly well musculoskeletal physical because if you don't have some success stories that don't need constant maintenance then you don't sound like a good investment to me because i'm gonna get caught in your net so a lot of people are like oh that's gonna crash my business model dude my waiting room has never been empty yeah, from totally. making people better quicker right so so it's not even a good business argument to be inefficient. I want more people crossing my threshold with a positive experience. And some of those will have a positive experience that requires maintenance. And some of those will have a positive experience that requires, ah, screwed up again, it's PRN. And some of those people will be independent, but the turning point in their life started in our clinic and they're going to tell a lot of people. That's right. Oh, I'll talk some trash. There was a guy online that he started saying uh, he had some clinical skills that were superior to mine. I don't know how you measure that. Uh, but we got a little picture of him handing out a mug to one of his patients for his 900th visit, a 900th visit mug. And I, I just <laughs> gave that picture right back to him. Like, I don't think we have an argument here about clinical efficiency, buddy, buddy, pal. No, no, no. Why don't you just, <laughs> don't give me a coffee mug. Give me a a ride on that boat. You'd be I right on that yeah, boat. That's what, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, the, the, the fact that I came when I was really trying to think outside the box and came back to my small town and, and sort of wrap myself in a, in a, in a, I wasn't in an academic environment and I wasn't trying to compete in a major market. I, I was back in my hometown. The humans the things that I, yeah. Oh, you go to the local, local grocery store, Walmart, and there's all the people that you thought you made better. And no, they're still limping. They're just going to see somebody else, you know? And I'm like, not everybody that leaves your clinic is happy or well, or has been well taken care of. You just think they do because your intentions are good, 
but you've got to have a feedback loop. And, and that's one thing that, that I've tried to do with movement. The FMS is not for y'all. The SFMA is not for y'all. It was for me to do a better job, but I have no problem sharing it with you. But the thing I'm not going to do is negotiate abbreviations and supplementations for what got me here, because I don't know if I could have got here with the 50% of the SFMA you agree with. I had to do the whole thing and it gave me the clarity and, and confidence to, to go into more systems theory and come back at this, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, from an ethical standpoint. And a lot of people are getting ready to make money in musculoskeletal medicine, but the people who are going to end up owning it are the ones who can bring the prevention uh, or early detection of musculoskeletal problems, just like they've done in every other health system. And if you, I mean, we're the last one. We're the last one that's going to get away with telling you what you just told us and calling it treatment. Yeah, you do have low back pain. And, you know, here we always uh, associate that with a weak core. Or here we always associate that with ergonomics. And we're going to say, and you're saying, yes. So everybody's got the prepackaged solution that we're just hoping you'll say low back pain because the more nonspecific it is, the less specific the measurement of our own effectiveness will be. That's inception level, Gray Cook, because you just, you just finished with where we completely started, but throughout the entire interview, you also wrapped up each little idea in song format. That's like a, this was a Gray Cook album on a podcast. Well, I'll tell you two things that, that I'm going to try to do is I've done two talks. One's called Movement Evaluation and one's called Movement Correction. And um, I'm going to try to share those two talks with, with all the people who are going to attend your conference. And if I can do it before the conference, that'd be even better. But Lee and some of my colleagues challenged me to talk about movement without talking about our brand. Meaning, I honestly think that people are using movement screening. They're not, not, they're not talking about us. There, there's a whole category that I think our questions started. And so I guess what I'm doing is saying, I think movement screening is a category. I offered a product and service to fit that bill, but I am an, under no illusions that it can be the only way we could do this. However, please consider these criteria before you try to develop your own screen because it's not a light, um, light duty healthcare exam and it's not an easygoing fitness exam. It is a completely unique entry point and, and it gives us operational tools and to be honest with you, I think Paleolithic humans had functional problems. We sedentary society and gluten and dairy allergies didn't create this shit. Um, and and participation trophies where everybody thinks they're an athlete when there are only three athletes on the field didn't create this either. We had functional problems from the day we were doing what we were doing, hunting and gathering. The problem was a functional problem either quickly killed you or you sucked it up and you worked through it. And, and, and that's, that's just the way it is. And, and, you know, it's a documentary that we were discussing a while back with, with the Aboriginal um, inhabitants of Australia, they get a hairline fracture. They walk on it. If it's non-displaced, they walk on it and their calcification is a little bit quicker than ours. They don't have a very comfortable day, but they use splints and tourniquets and salves and stuff like that. And they just get on through it. But we've got such a comfortable society. We can be dysfunctional for 20 years and have very slow erosion of joint surface and, and muscle coordination. And then all of a sudden we step off a curb, the straw that broke the camel's back. And we think we've got, you know, uh, a facet impingement. 
we do, but the dominoes were stacked in that direction for the last 30 years. And so I honestly think that the functional perspective is very, very easily covered up with ways to manage your symptoms or ways to make your fitness easier. Meaning we've damn near got people laying down riding a recumbent bike now. It's like the most dysfunctional position. You sit all friggin' day and now we're going to let you sit with that anterior head posture, collapsed rib cage, leaning on your own liver, just going through and lip. I, I would rather have you standing periodically and, and changing position than doing any rhythmical thing. Just oh, yeah, going we're very, through positions. Very good at aligning our lifestyles with pillows. Oh my God. And oh. so that, in that environment, you will have long-term dysfunction. And that's why we need a functional scale because people, who you and I know should have managed this earlier and our, you know, a PE teacher should have picked this up. Your first coach should have picked this up. Your gymnastics coach shouldn't let you do that much hyperextension. I mean, all these people yeah. should have captured this um, before it gets to us, but they didn't. So it's on us, but let's not try to make it what it's not. It's, it's, it's not a healthcare problem like you think because it's a self-perpetuating feedback loop. These people are unaware that they're balanced is four standard deviations below a 70 year old and they're 40. That's the, that's the kind of shit we shoot across somebody's bow when we give them a full global assessment. It's like, you know, you're not even considered safe in community ambulation and it's an athlete recovering from an ACL. Right. They're a good compensator. They can run. They just can't balance for 10 seconds on that leg, but they can still run. Somebody's got to say that's dysfunction even though you can run that's dysfunction and, and, and hold that line. It would be hypertension, but you can still run. Why, why can't it be single leg stance dysfunction, but you can still run. You can have a medical problem and grit through it, overcome it or compensate around it. Doesn't make it go away. It reinforces it. Yeah. Making these people understand beyond the optics, you know, this dysfunction does have a meaning to it. Um, all right. So I'm going to give you a choice at the end. We can go with proximal stability, distal mobility, or we can go with the concept um, that I've sort of adopted from Stu McGill, and that is 100% exertion at least once, once a day, once a week. So I've come up with a, a thing that I do with my patients where I ask them to at least exert themselves 100%, whether it's a maximum rep, push, pull, a sprint, something to reset their brain so it understands what 100% is, since so many people have forgot. Uh, we can discuss that, or we can discuss proximal stability, distal mobility. Your choice. You know, you know what? Uh, I like the first thing you brought up. Uh, we, can, we can do uh, proximal, distal uh, real quick, but I like what you're doing. Now, I've got a question for you and Stu. Uh -huh. That 100%? Yeah. Are we looking at intensity yes. or volume? Intensity. 100% intensity, yes. Uh -huh. Okay, I would probably say, just to throw it out as a thought experiment, I have been approaching the, the movement screen and SFMA two different ways. In our early movement interventions, we would easily see somebody with an active straight leg raise that was horrible, like 45 degrees. That's, that's all they can do. 
And the first thing we said is don't just see that as a mobility problem. That could also be a stability problem. So we've shown people how to activate their core. Their leg goes up. We've shown people activate their core. Their leg doesn't budge, you know. And so there's a lot of different things. But when we start seeing that active straight leg raise, get up around 75 degrees and see that freedom in that posterior chain, we immediately rushed over to the other side of the clinic and started teaching people single leg deadlifts. Because we wanted to reinforce the pattern. We wanted to load the pattern. But there's another way to load the pattern. We could take the same person who I just got you to a, a good toe touch, a good leg raise, and you know your movement patterns are back. When can I run again? Hmm, good question. Let's put you on the <laughs> treadmill. I'm going to put you on a 3% incline, and we're going to go for one mile. Okay? They get on. They get off. If they've retained it, we're safe for a mile. So you can either have a mile run load. Now you and I both know that wasn't hundred percent. And I know what Stu's trying to say, but there's going to be a lot of situations where that hundred percent load is ambitious, or I got to put you in almost a safe position, like an isometric right. and, and an isometric would be my, my default there. But maybe that's why a gorilla beats its chest. That's an all out effort. That's a, that's a scream. That's a primal urge. And for some reason, I think it uh, resets the neurological. System. That's what I was so just about to say. Can, I do it as a neurological reset. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but when, when an opera singer hits their money note, how's that not a hundred percent effort? You know? So I think that it's very easy to start thinking of intensity with uh, external load instead of intensity of internal stabilization. And, and Pavel talks about a lot of that in, in, in kettlebell training. But what I want to do is say, let's, if, if that is, if we think that hundred percent load is somehow restorative or beneficial, then let's argue the other end. When we are protecting you from load, when you're delicate, meaning you, you're, you're just now touching your movement patterns, but touching your toes in the movement pattern, but I definitely don't think you're a candidate for deadlifting today, right? What are the loads I want to do? Well, will the load of your life allow this yeah. to, to remain or not? And so what I started doing is looking back at the work of a chiropractor named Phil Maffetone who was working with a lot of ultra endurance athletes back in the eighties and thinking that these people were ambitiously training at a heart rate level that exceeded their biomechanical efficiency. So what he started doing is saying, I got to get you at a lower heart rate, but not just because you're creating a, a, a lactate, uh, uh, problem and not just because you're inefficient breathing here, you're, you're still good enough at creating lactic acid where you're getting through it. But he noticed when we got you into more of a low cardiovascular zone, many of the biomechanical er- errors associated with your running, cycling, and swimming seem to go away. Now, the problem is when I do 180 minus my age, which is sort of the hidden gem that Phil <laughs> Mastone did, I'm between 120 and 130 beat per minute jogging pace which when I first started put me at a 14 minute mile, which is unacceptable for me and my ego, but it was totally appropriate because the first time I got that running cadence down, I went four miles Uh without ever going, without ever training for it. So I think that loading the system 
in finding the minimum effective dose of load that doesn't destroy movement patterning. So if we've got a movement patterning baseline, if we've got a heart rate variability baseline, if we've got a single leg stance or YBT baseline or a breathing baseline, if we have all these baselines of what you and I would consider inherent health and function integrity, then what I'm looking for is the minimum effective load that I can pull off that won't interrupt that, that won't undermine my screen. And so what I've realized is many of us are training at a cardiovascular level that we can cover, but leaves us with a lot of biomechanical habit and rest and recovery habit problems. And when we look at the, the new trend toward ketosis and realize that a lot of the the longer lived cultures have been more ketogenic, more fats. I mean, when we cut on carbs, we replace it with protein. When most cultures cut down on carbs, they replace it with fat. And our brain likes fat and our neurological system likes fat and our sleep and wake habits like fat and our hormones like fat. And yet we don't do things to foster more of a ketogenic state of life, whether you do it through a little bit of fasting or a little bit of more, more um, lower uh, carb uh, food or whether you do it in your workout, you can turn your body into a fat burning machine. And if much of what we combat in musculoskeletal medicine is unnecessary inflammation, then lifestyle, all right, it's, it's the poor sleep, it's the poor hydration, it's poor nutrition. So if we can combat some of our inflammation with that ketogenic diet, then why aren't our workouts more ketogenic? Because the first thing that's going to happen is the guy in row three is going to be like, yeah, but interval training's better if you're going yeah. for a gold medal. If you're a college athlete, you know, I'm 53. I'm training for better sex and, and, and a little paddle boarding. That's about it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This, I'm, that's going through my mind. Like, how do you explain this to a CrossFitter, you know? Yeah. Well, you explain it to them when they get injured. <laughs> Just like I do with an NFL player or, or, you know, a college rugby player or something like that. Most of the time when you're sidelined, I have your full attention. And that's why sometimes I'm, my be I'm a better strength coach than most of the strength coaches you had because you thought what they were saying was a suggestion and now you can't get back without me. So you're going to listen. And so, you know, I learned what I should have done as a strength coach by listening to the advice that I was giving people when they were injured because they, they sort of had to listen to me. I was their last, I was their last chance. I've been, I've been at the end of a lot of guys NFL career and they knew exactly why they were in my clinic. I was running a, a perspective for the team. The team was paying the bill. They wanted to know, is this guy got three years in it? Is yeah. this guy got four years in it? Is this, is, does this guy fit? What can you tell us? So, I mean, full disclosure, we knew the elephant in the room and, and I've got to be the patient advocate and also say, I, I was basically evaluating this person for job specificity, not their own health. But I've got to discuss the health on both sides of it. And, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm being put in an ethical predicament, but yet it's not going to go away. So how could I handle it as ethically as possible? And so what I did is said, listen, if you change this, this, and this, I think you'll all get what you want. But if you don't change this, this, and this, I don't think any of you are going to get what you want. How does that sound? And I made a lot of friends by saying there's a middle path here. And, and, and it's going to, and both of you, it's going to be a win-win. I mean, I'm sort of probably a little bit hopeless romantic, but I think Stephen Covey was right. If it's not a win-win, it's not going to be sustainable because one of us is going to feel exploited. Right. Nailed it.
Nailed it. Um, see you in a couple of weeks. Everybody's going to see you in a couple of weeks. And it's going to be fun. I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one, not only because uh, I don't know where you got me batting in the lineup. I'm not looking at it right now, but uh, I, like, I like the lineup that, that I get to listen to when I'm not talking. <laughs> you're the, yeah, you're at the end, and we've, we've added. Um, so Annie O'Connor is going to be there. And okay. So, so she's going to talk about pain classification from more of a McKinsey perspective. And then yep. uh, Christine Gertz is uh, she's a researcher and she's going to talk a lot about spine specific stuff. And then right before you is Greg Kochuk, who's a researcher and he teaches at the uh, University of Alberta in their physical therapy department. But he's a chiropractor, and uh, he's going to talk about he. Well, he's he. You're going to love Greg Kochuk if you've never seen him speak. You're just going to love the guy. So he goes on right before you. And then you bring it home, slam dunk. Okay. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, been on the ground for three weeks, so my uh, my uh, uh, frequent flyer miles are going to drop off if I don't do something. So. <laughs> we'll put them to work, my friend. Uh, thank you so much for the podcast again. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think some people are wondering where Gray Cook went. Gray Cook doesn't go anywhere. He's just in the beat laboratory figuring more things out. Yeah. I, well, you know, I, I, I pulled myself off the lecture circuit when I had some neck surgery and I figured, well, if I, if, if I survive this rehabilitation, maybe I'll get this hernia taken care of. Cause uh, I'm, I'm the kid who's the, the hypermobile that shouldn't have been playing football, but I did. So I was 18 fractures before I was 18. So I've, and I was born with a congenital hernia. So that's plagued me about every, every decade, one way or the other. But um, it's when I pulled myself off the, the lecture circuit and I, and I was rehabbing and putting myself through a lot of the same systems that we talk yep. about, yep. I, I literally went through it as a consumer and said, what can we do better in our courses? What can we do better? And, you know, this was already, this was me already, you know, agreeing to do a second edition of the movement book, but then saying, you know, what do I want to say different or what can I say better? Or what have I learned, you know, from, from working with my colleagues, from, from coming at my own neurological problem, my own musculoskeletal problem, my own uh, genetic problem of, of joint laxity and, and that sort of ALARS downlos syndrome type stuff. And uh, it's, it's actually been very refreshing. Uh, Matt, uh, who's helping me do most of my editing, says the worst thing he ever did was hand me those uh, easel pads that are like big post-it notes, like two foot by three foot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because this entire office down here has, has <laughs> yeah, it has post-it notes the size of poster boards. And they're just all the random thoughts that I get by, by sort of asking these questions and I put them up. And then I shuffle them like a deck of cards until it tells the story. And, and, and I can't do it any other way. Um, it's sort of messy because most of my thoughts come in, in daydreams. Like, well, it's a thought experiment. What if we ask this question here? Would it send the entire case on a different trajectory? And, that, and I think that's, that's, that's beautiful how reorganizing a perspective can change somebody's life. And, 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 and getting that right when you're in a professional situation is where it starts. That's why I'm excited to have you at our show because you're going to rearrange some thought processes. Oh, and by the way, if Matt Cook is listening, you are a superhero. Um, I completely respect the work you do for your brother. Because uh, <laughs> I know actually, it can be easy. 
he got us. He got us started, and he left. But I'll give you one piece for everybody to listen to. When he was a kid, he's I'm the extrovert, he's the introvert, and we're ten years apart in age. He's younger than me, and uh, one day he was pouting about something, and he had a Spider-Man uh, um, uh, toboggan, like a stocking cap, but pulled down into a full-face Spider-Man. But it was a stocking cap he wore to school, and he didn't want to talk to anybody that day, so he pulled down his Spider Spider-Man mask. And my mom said, "It's a no-talk day. Don't talk to Matt." Um, <laughs> And so Matt that was a challenge uh, for you. Still has, Matt still has the guitar he was playing in high school. So one day he comes into work and it's a cold day. He couldn't find his hat and he likes to walk to work. So he comes in and he's behind a cubicle divider and he's worn the Spider-Man stocking cap that he had as a kid. And he pulled it down over his face and leaned back. And I'm like, Oh gosh, it's a no talk day <laughs> and walk back out. <laughs> uh, finally, what's the timeline on the new edition of the book? You know, um, I, I, I've got one more educational course I'm trying to produce, and, and the spine of that course is actually what I'm presenting to you guys, sort of a new way of coming at exercise. And as soon as that chapter is complete, the book is essentially complete, but then we get to go through the editing and, and, and segues from one chapter to another. So the new movement book is going to take on a completely new look and feel. The, the, there's been a slight adjustment to the movement screen, slight adjustment to the um, uh, SFMA. There's been the addition of the FCS. Uh, fundamental capacity screen. There's been the addition of a breathing screen. There's been the inclusion of sort of the YBT and a better decision-making model. And uh, I, I want to disclose way more about exercise than I was allowed to do in the first book um, because we just we we just weren't going to do 800 photographs. And sometimes that's what it takes. So I'm trying to get as much of my exercise stuff done in video and coursework as possible but I still want to expose the scaffolding and architecture in the new movement book. So as soon as I finish the corrective part, because that's where the, the old movement book sort of ended with, if you know these things about movement, then, then these are the corrective philosophies or corrective systems that you should go through reorganizing, you know, movement and, and awareness. And, and the, the one thing I realized is we shouldn't be telling people what their movement screen is or what their SFMA revealed. We should be putting them on a path where they'll run right into that balance problem and be more self-aware of it or right into that ankle stiffness and be self-aware of it. So I think sometimes we're so confident in our models that we expect them to learn our appreciation and language. And that's not what it's for. I put you into a corrective situation knowing very first that the, the object of that drill is not to correct you. It's to magnify the problem so you and I can have a discussion about it in your terms. Yeah, that is weird. My right ankle feels all, all stoved up or, or locked up. Good. We're going to use that word because that's the word I use for stiffness. <laughs> you know, yeah. and boom. So, any, so anything I can do to change what locked up feels like is now perceived as value from them. And I'm like, that's cool that you felt that because I measured a 12-year improvement. And once I establish that, I spend more time doing that than I do the SFMA now. But once I've done that, we never have any non-compliance issues or stupid-ass exercise questions again. Like, oh, you told me to do it. It made a difference. You measured it. I felt it. What's the next thing? And, and, and it goes like that. But if you don't take that time on the front end to gauge your objective measurement with their subjective valuation, 
And, and, if, and if they think they're, no, I've got great balance on my right leg. All right, stand on your right foot. Okay, I just checked your confidence reality ratio. No, you don't <laughs> by scientific standards, but I'm glad that you've got the confidence that you won't fall. You know, so, so, so we either got to adjust your awareness or illuminate it or something. But once I get that done, I think if, if I've got a talent and movement, it's not in my hands. It's in the fact that I understand what it feels like to be on the other side of the knife, the needle, the adjustment or whatever. And the way I want, want to be talked to is not necessarily in the language that you feel comfortable with. You got to find my comfortable language and whatever word I use for tight, locked up, malaligned, inflamed, neural tension, whatever word I'm using, you relate your objective measure to that and then see if my feeling and your measure all of a sudden become a parallel path. You may not understand how much gold that is for the modern chiropractor at this moment, uh, but you just, you just illuminated a lot of people who are listening. So thank you because that. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely welcome because here's the thing. You don't have to ever explain the needle or adjustment that way, but the thing that they're going to participate in, their self-stretch, their self-mode, their home exercise, that is where they become your ally if they understand what you're doing. And, and I failed to say it that clean for 20 years. I knew it. I did it. But I, I, I was just trying to say it without flat out just saying it like I just did. But, but I'm glad to say it again in a few weeks because it, it, it has helped me help a lot of clinicians that got a little bit stuck. Your injury has been a gift. I guess, but uh, about 6.30 in the morning when this old guy's trying to unfold out of a horizontal position, I beg to differ. I, I, <laughs> no, my, my wife was telling me that this morning. She goes, she goes every, every time you get, you get lemons, you just, you know, you, after you quit bitching about lemon juice in your eye, you just turn around and make lemonade for somebody else to drink. And so that's, that's what you do. And I'm like, all right, well. <laughs> that's, that's that's what I do with injuries. So he gave you some of your own medicine. I guess. <laughs> All right, boss. Uh, I'm gonna see you in a couple weeks. Okay. It'll be good. And uh, thanks for the invite, man. No, thank you so much. I appreciate you.